Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. So much for 2021 being any better than 2020. While I never thought that a simple turning of the calendar page would magically result in a dramatic improvement in, well, pretty much anything, I really hoped that it would mean that maybe, just maybe, we could start to see things improve, if only a tiny bit. Well, so much for that. I don't even know what to think anymore, or how to keep a positive spin on anything that is transpiring. I continue to see the most outrageous behaviors from people who continue to try to undermine any efforts to rein in a virus that is completely out of control because, heaven forbid, they should be somehow be put out upon, even the tiniest bit. The vaccine is getting rolled out at a pace where it would take something like 10 years to inoculate the whole population if they were even at all willing to receive it, and I won't even touch the insanity that was January 6th. So what are we to do? How do we keep pretending that nothing is amiss and carry on with our training and hoping that races will somehow return when there is so much apathy, anger, and overall lack of will to do anything that is needed to right the ship? Well, I for one don't have any answers. All I can do is keep my head down and stay focused on a future that just has to be better than what we are living through now. The alternative is simply too bleak. I am completely understanding of the reality that all of my races may again be cancelled this year, but despite that, I'm going to keep training, in case they happen, and because it is the one constant that I have control over, and that brings me some degree of sanity. And at the end of the day, I think that's what we all crave, control of our own destiny. In this time where so much seems so much bigger than us and so out of our ability to have any say or influence on, maintaining our focus on our diet and training is one important way that we can stay on top of ourselves and escape, if only for a short time each day, from the chaos that is ongoing in the world around us. So stay the course, my friends, and I'll be right there with you. Together, with races or without them, we can keep our own strength at the forefront and be ready for whatever happens so that when the light finally comes, and this is somehow behind us, we will emerge stronger than those who let that focus slip. I promise to be here, right alongside of you, so always feel free to drop me a line if you find yourselves in need of a word of encouragement or with a question that you need answered for how to find your reason to keep moving forward or for any other question that you'd like me to answer on this podcast. On the show today, as I mentioned, COVID is raging around the world right now, with new, more infectious variants popping up in different countries and causing exponential increases in infections. With all these new infections, there is, of course, the risk of many, many more deaths. But among those who recover, the road to health is often not that easy or quick. I have previously spoken about post-COVID myocarditis, but there is another much more common syndrome of symptoms that afflicts COVID survivors, and that is the subject of my medical question for this episode. On the last episode, I had a conversation with Hunter Allen about using power to improve training and racing on the bike. Well, today, I welcome John Mason to the program to discuss a different kind of power meter, specifically the stride power meter that's used for running. John is the triathlon coach at Colorado State University, where he's had a lot of success at the national level, and he has a lot of experience with running power. And we talk about how this technology works and what its utility is to runners and triathletes. 
Well, if you enjoy the TriDoc podcast and find the content helpful to your training, racing, and recovery, I invite you to visit my Patreon page, where you can learn how to become a supporter and get access to even more content, like the bonus interview that I did with Hunter Allen that can be found on that page right now. All the information on the different tiers of support, what each gets you, can be found at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks in advance for considering. At the time that I'm recording this, almost 92 million people around the world have been infected with the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, responsible for causing the global pandemic over the past year. Despite having only 5% of the world's population, the United States is home to more than a quarter of those infections, almost 23 million of them, and so far, 375,000 Americans have died. When the virus first emerged, the death rate was feared to be much higher than it has turned out to be, which is a good thing. But the thing that makes this disease so horrible, and such a danger for our healthcare systems and the populations that depend on them, is not so much the death rate, as terrible as that is, but actually the rate at which it causes serious disease, which requires hospitalization. Overall, COVID infections necessitate a higher rate of hospitalization and intensive care unit utilization than any infectious disease that we have encountered of this nature before. Coupled with the high infectivity, COVID-19 is taxing resources wherever it is left unchecked. While many of those who are infected will recover in two to three weeks and may not be any worse for wear, we are now coming to learn that for many more, the virus has proved to be even more burdensome by causing long-lasting symptoms that can be debilitating and have a significant impact on quality of life. Now, as with everything else about this disease, we're still learning to understand exactly what the after-effects of COVID-19 infection are for the people who experience them, why they occur in some and not others, and how frequently they are seen, as well as for how long they can be expected to last. Now, I've spoken on this podcast before about the potentially serious complication of post-COVID myocarditis, or inflammation of the heart. But doctors have also become aware of a host of other possible sequelae of COVID infection that occur much more commonly. These can include effects on the respiratory system, the kidneys, the skin, the neurologic system, and even psychiatric effects. Now, there are only a handful of studies out there to help quantify this problem, although a fairly large trial was published in the reputable journal The Lancet just last week, and I'm going to get to that in a short while. But based on surveys, as well as other means of collecting this information, the most common symptoms of post-COVID syndrome seem to be fatigue and malaise, followed by shortness of breath. Chest pains, palpitations, insomnia, and cough are also reported in pretty high frequencies. Now, depending on the study, up to two-thirds of patients can suffer from these long-term effects that can last for as long as three months after the illness itself is cleared. Those who were hospitalized for COVID tended to have a higher likelihood of prolonged symptoms, and those who had more severe disease necessitating intensive care admission are even more at risk, with up to three-quarters of those patients developing long-term sequelae. It's thought that even those with mild disease who did not require hospitalization may develop post-COVID syndrome, but the exact incidence in this population is unknown, as are the most common symptoms or the duration effects in that particular population. Now, in those patients who've been hospitalized and then develop persistent symptoms, they can last for as long as three months, although there are reports of cases where they've lasted even longer. The magnitude of symptoms is difficult to quantify, 
but some researchers have been able to study measurable parameters like pulmonary function tests and have been found to see very profound effects many months after infections have resolved. A large study out in The Lancet just last week quantified some of these effects better than most of the other studies that have come out to date, but only looked at those patients with more serious disease, specifically those who'd been admitted to hospital or the intensive care unit during their illness. This study followed patients for months after their discharge and had patients undergo lung function tests, as well as undergo simple exercise performance and even chest CT scans, and the findings were really concerning. Just over three-quarters of patients had symptoms, as many as four months after discharge from hospital, with fatigue and sleep disturbance being the most commonly reported of those symptoms. Patients with more severe disease had the most symptoms, both in terms of the number of symptoms and also the severity. They also tended to have significant psychiatric symptoms, such as depression or anxiety. Even in recovery, CT scans demonstrated significant changes to the architecture of the lungs, suggesting that the infection had done real long-term damage, and this was borne out in lung function tests that showed significant impairment, again worse than those who had had more severe illness. Now, these effects were significant enough to have an impact on endurance performance and would likely result in impaired exercise capacity for several additional months, though this question has not yet been addressed in studies as of yet. All of this is very worrisome and suggests that for active, otherwise healthy individuals, this remains a disease to be incredibly worried about and to avoid at all costs. There was no relationship to age at all in terms of developing post-COVID syndrome, so being young is no guarantee in this regard. The single best way to avoid these debilitating symptoms is simply to not contract the illness in the first place. So to sum up, post-COVID syndrome is very real and can impact a host of body functions with prolonged fatigue, shortness of breath, and insomnia being the most common symptoms. Patients with more severe illness have the highest risk of developing post-COVID syndrome, but even those who are not hospitalized have some risk, although the exact amount is unclear. Post-COVID syndrome lasts many weeks to many months, and in some unfortunate cases can go on for even longer. Effects on the heart and lungs are quantifiable and can have a significant impact on exercise tolerance and performance, but it's unclear how long this negative effect can last and how much of it is recoverable. Clearly, avoiding COVID infection remains of paramount importance, and several measures should be taken to decrease the likelihood of contracting the disease, all of which I have covered in the past on this podcast. Wear a good quality mask when going out of your home. Maintain social distancing whenever possible. Avoid enclosed areas with groups of people, especially when masks aren't being worn, like in restaurants or bars. And as much as possible, avoid socializing with others outside of your immediate family group, except when it can be done outdoors or when everyone adheres to wearing a mask and maintaining social distancing. And finally, wash your hands frequently and get vaccinated as soon as it's available to you. We're going to continue to learn more and more about this illness over time, as well as of the after effects in the form of post-COVID syndrome. But as always, it's going to be much more preferable to read about these things than it is to experience it firsthand. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on this podcast? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com.
I'm joined today by John Mason, who, after a stellar career as a member of the United States Air Force triathlon team, took a job as head coach of the men's and women's Colorado State University triathlon team. Within this 50-member team, he has nurtured all levels of athletes, from the first-timer to elite and pro-athletes. Under his guidance, CSU Triathlon reached a national podium in the men's team, women's team, and combined team in all of 2017, 18, and 19, marking them as one of the top triathlon teams in the nation. Some time ago, John began incorporating the Stride Running Power Meter into his armamentarium of tools to help develop his runners, and he's here today to help me and you understand everything that we need to know in order to decide if this is some technology that we want to consider incorporating into our training as well. Thank you so much for joining me today on the TriDoc Podcast, John. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. Well, Don, uh, I know the Stride has been around for uh, quite a long time, but uh, probably most people don't really understand how it works. Uh, I know that power meters on bikes are something that <laughs> more people understand, but still a lot of it's a bit of a black box. So can you give us a little bit of insight as to how the Stride power meter works for running? Yeah, we've, we've been uh, up in Fort Collins using it now for probably six, seven years. And, you know, it's very different from the bike power. Absolutely. Uh, bike power is all about just power, muscling it, getting as high of numbers as possible. And I, I would say similar to swimming, you know, we're, we're looking for that form and efficiency. And, you know, that as a running background, that is really something that I've looked towards for my athletes and myself is finding the efficiency. So that was the first step is doing the running drills and running efficiency and then we just kind of fell into stride like wow stride is actually verifying what we've seen on some of these things so yeah that's one thing that we've really found is the difference between bike power meters and just running power meters is finding that efficiency so if i can spread the gospel on that that's that's what i'd like to do but do you know how the tech actually works? Like, I mean, a, a pedal or a power meter and a hub, I mean, it's strain gauges, it's direct measurement of force. Uh, the power meter of the stride does not appear to be working that way. Do you have a sense of the science in terms of how, what it's actually measuring? Well, you know, there's the engineering side um, of that, and I don't I only know if we have that much time, really. However, um, instead of all those accelerometers and all that stuff, we... We were in the inside on uh, starting out with the, I guess it was around the waist strap and the small of our back that we start, started using that. And then we went from that to the heart rate strap. And then we went and put it on a pod now. And there's been a couple iterations of that pod that's on your, on your shoe. And really, I look at it as it's a bounce meter. <laughs> it's there's forward forces, there's up and down forces, and I'm sure there's lateral and, and even reverse forces. But I look at it as simply, and this is how I tell my athletes, is it's really just measuring your bounce. It's, so that's, what I, that's how I simplify it. Okay. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think one of the confusing issues for me as a, a non-user of the device is that they, they refer to it as power and watts. And uh, that's where it gets a little confusing because with a power meter and a bike, I mean, it's, it's purely deviation of the strain gauges that gets translated into 
newtons and watts and right. and with accelerometers that's it, it's a lot of math being done on the back end and a computer chip and so it, 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 i'm almost wondering if they they couldn't have found a, a better way of defining it and i like what you've just used to help me understand that um you you alluded to one of the earlier versions of the device which was a, a waist or chest strap can you can you tell me how have the devices kind of evolved as they've gone from one generation to the next Right. Yeah. I mean, it was a little uh, lash that we would just attach to our shorts. And there was a lot of uh, there was a lot, you know, a balance meter. And that's measuring a lot of balance when it's attached to clothing and on the small of your back. So there was probably a lot of degree of error with that. Um, it was cutting edge, though. So we were like, wow, this is kind of cool. It's still giving us a number. And then we do some things, which I would like to talk about even more is what things we were doing with it. And then, um, and then that would spit out a different number. So those, you know, at, even at that time, whether it was erroneous or not, it made sense to us. And then when it went to that heart rate strap, there was, again, maybe some erroneous data, but it was giving us data that you could adjust based on the way you ran. So I, I do think it's the, be the best product now is the versions that are on the, the foot pod uh, without being the science geek um, in the room. But, yeah. And have you seen that with the uh, advancing of the generations, has it become a device that seems more accurate with less variability from runner to runner and also within a runner? And, and really, this isn't for me as a coach or an athlete to uh, measure runner to runner. It's really just to measure yourself. It's a personal, it's a personal metric. And that's what I, I tell everybody a lot is, you know, in power, we're always comparing here on Zwift and we're doing watts per kilogram and like, oh, who can produce the most power? And that is not what we're doing here with the Stride or, or any of the models, whether it's Garmin or Polar. We are, we are measuring something that, that you can adjust by running efficiently and then throughout a, uh, a, a period of time too. So if I was to do a workout, how can I adjust that later in the, in the, in the process? Okay, so you just said something that really resonates with me, and that's like you're not so much using this to compare yourself to others. You're using it to compare yourself to yourself over time and from day to day. So let's talk about why someone should use running power and how you use it as a coach. Yeah, um, well, there's, there's really two critical ways that we do it, and it's pacing. Um, pacing is the big one. I think that's the most popular version that people are getting out of it is how can I, and especially in ultra running, trail running, long running, uh, marathons, um, is, okay, people, we don't need to go out too hard. And what is that governor? Uh, what is that number that we're looking for that we don't, maybe that's the ceiling in the first period of the, of the race? And, and so using that as, again, an inhibitor or a governor of the number range that we're looking for, fairly similar to our zones that we use, you know, like I don't want to cross into zone four at the beginning of a marathon. Let's stick with zone two, zone three. So that's, that's the first way we, we utilize it. However, the, I think the, the better way and the mo most sign, um, most bang for the buck that we've received, um, up at, up in Fort Collins with MP Multisport and CSU Triathlon is is working on efficiency and working on our stride, working on our stride rates, 
working on our vertical oscillation and ground contact time and all of those. And, and oh, by the way, they are giving you those numbers too, just kind of like the Garmin devices have been doing. But they're, they're spitting out these numbers, but you know, how do you read it all? And so what, what I like to do is do the same workout. Give an athlete, a specific athlete, a workout. Let's say, let's make it simple and do three by K, one uh, K repeats, right? And what are the numbers we are getting on that one K? So let's say it's 200 watts average for that K. Well, let's, let's, you know, work on drills. What are the weaknesses? Maybe get them on video and see what they're um doing in between and then maybe fast forward about six weeks or a month or a a couple months and then working on their limiters working on maybe they were bouncing too much or not enough or maybe they had very low cadence and working on those limiters you know through video and through just some dynamic drills and, and and getting that efficient running form and then go back to that workout and it verifies that you're running efficiently by having lower numbers. So it's it's the inverse of what we're seeing with bike power is I actually want my athletes to have lower power numbers because that means it's, you know, it's a uh, load bearing sport, right? So we're pounding the pavement. And if I can produce lower numbers at going the same rate in the same heart rate, then it's verifying that I'm running more efficiently and that's that's where the money is right there so that going back to that one example is let's say that is 200 watts let's say six minute miles well if we go back two months later and it was six minute miles and it was 190 watts that means he could probably sustain that a lot longer without all those forces acting upon his body or maybe 200 watts, it stayed the same, but he's running 550. That's good, too. Both of those are more efficient. Okay, so there was a lot to unpack there. I just want to get to uh, some of it and just tease a little bit more out of what you said, because I think that was really helpful to, to get me to understand how this can be a useful tool. Um, because, like you said, power is really about efficiency, and it's, you know, you can see how pace can change, but if power is increasing to maintain pace, then that suggests that the person might be less efficient. Uh, will you see a disconnect between power and pace over the course of a longer race, for example? Uh, is that something that you see because of, as an athlete becomes more tired, that they're becoming less efficient, that kind of thing? Absolutely. And it's usually right before the wheels fall off. We've uh, been able to isolate that time frame that um, and, and we and we know as uh, running coaches that we when we really get tired, our cadence slows. And when that cadence slows, you are overstriding usually. And when you overstride, then all those forces are going from your heel up into your body and just creating that load. So that's one of those ways when we are seeing overstriding or just slowing our cadence that the the power will actually kind of spike a little bit, go up, and then it just falls off because you've you've either bonked. So it it does it does go up and then it just drops, and that's usually because but the pace dropped. So. 
Now, how can you know for an athlete? I mean, you throw out some numbers, so I'm just going to throw out some numbers that might make no sense. So forgive me. But uh, an athlete's running and they're putting out 200 watts to run a 630 per mile pace. How do you know that 200 watts is an ideal number for that individual person. Like, I mean, I can have an athlete do an FTP test and generate, you know, a, a wattage for them on the bike that will let me know where they should be at different kinds of, you know, speeds or times or whatever. For a runner, is there a test that can tell you what they should be or what, what you know, where, where they're at at a baseline? Absolutely. There's, I mean, I think every coach has their own functional test. Um, I do know that stride has their, they call it critical power. It's, it's very similar to the, like a threshold test or threshold power. And then from that, there are, um, just the creation of zones, just like we see in, in, in many ways, whether it's freel or training peaks or however you want to go. So um, there are zones that you can determine based off of testing. Uh, but I want to be clear because it seems to me that these are different things like fitness and efficiency are not necessarily the same. So it seems like you have to be coaching both of those. And then how can you know which is actually, I mean, maybe it doesn't matter, but, but how could you know which is actually benefiting the athlete more? Yeah, I think that's where it's being abused a lot is they're not they're not seeing those numbers and they're saying, well, you know, if I increase in pace, I'm going to get higher numbers. And that's what the zones do say with a threshold. If you're just looking at it as threshold, then you can use them as strictly almost linear zones that we see like in, in cycling power. But that doesn't tell you how long you can maintain that. I mean, zone four is zone four, right? But the true definition of threshold is, you know, one hour gun to your head or whatever you want to use. So it, it, I mean, the zones have to be set up correctly, but it is also, that's the pacing part of it. But then again, there's also the efficiencies too, that we look at from a, from a, a time standpoint as how long can we develop this athlete to have efficient zones for that specific race. So I guess I want, I guess what I'm asking is as you see an athlete improve, you'll see their pace come down because they'll become a, a faster, stronger runner. Will you see their power go up or does power tend to, because power is a measure of efficiency. And you had said, ideally you want a runner to run a faster pace on lower power or a faster pace on the same power. Um, as an athlete becomes a better runner, will you see their power number go up or do you tend to see it come down because they're becoming more efficient? So better runner <laughs> in, can be defined as faster or more efficient. So if an efficient, more efficient runner, I would see the pace, um, if, it, if the pace was held constant, then the, num then the power would go down. Okay. But if we're strictly talking pace, as in speed, um, it would match up with power. So speed increases, power increases. It doesn't increase as much as it did the last time we did that exact same test, right? So that's where efficiencies are going in conjunction with the speed 
Is that? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm just trying to get my head wrapped around it because it's a uh, it's an interesting concept, and it's not one that uh, is. It, it seems to be less linear and less connected uh, than you know some of the other um, metrics are. So, as a, a coach myself and an athlete, how uh, maybe these are separate questions? How do you suggest that people get power? in running into their regimen? Uh, and I guess that's probably separate questions for an athlete than it is for a coach, but I'm interested in both sides. How do people get familiarized with it and how do they start to incorporate it in an intelligent way? Absolutely. You got to work on running efficiencies, no matter if you're a sprinter or if you're an ultra runner is what, what, what are you doing wrong and working on that and seeing yourself on video and and working with a coach and working with somebody that actually knows the the nuances of just running and that's again the cr- ground contact time the you know oscillation and so this is this is a verification of what we're doing correctly if if you if you're working with the coach and you're on video and and the coach sees you uh, let's just say doing a hundred meter and a lot of bounce and a, and a, maybe a, a, a very slow um, cadence where the you know long strides, and then coach says, "Okay, hey, let's just slow down that, uh, or let's increase the cadence and and shorten that stride out a little bit, and then maybe that'll promote you know less bounce to it. We're still measuring it with stride or whatever power meter we want, and." you'll actually see like little things. You'll see that number drop if it's more efficient. And that's like, you know, like, um, like forward your shoulders a little bit or just lean forward a little bit or quicken your cadence or use your arms a little bit more, just little things like that. And you'll see those numbers drop. And what kind of resources are there out there to help people, you know, get started with this technology so that they can better understand how to use it? Uh, well, I think Stride has a great website that um, has a database that links to a lot of coaches and how to set it up. I, I do know that um, Polar and Garmin are doing the same things with it. I um, We've We've had a lot more experience with Stride um, personally. Um, I do believe that they've been able to support their athletes pretty well in terms of answering questions that they would have, um, educating their coaches. And, you know, I, I believe it's it's a great product. Um, not that I've drank the Kool-Aid or not. I think there's a few out there. I'm not necessarily just sponsoring Stride on this. Um, however, I, you know, it's a local Colorado company and I do, I do appreciate everything that they've done. And you said Garmin offers, uh, something, uh, is that just through their standard foot pod or is there something else that they have available? Um, I have not used it personally, but a lot of these metrics that we've been talking about is on, even on their heart rate strap. Okay. And, and oh, that, have, right. And they do have their pods too. Right. So it's a quickly evolving, uh, uh, science for sure in the last yeah. tw- 24 months. Great. 
Well, John, uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on the podcast today and giving us a, a really nice and concise uh, introduction to running with power, both from the perspective of an athlete and a coach. Uh, John Mason is a the head coach of the men's and women's Colorado State University triathlon team. Hopefully, uh, they'll be back in action in uh, 2021, and uh, we all hope for a health, healthy and uh, safe return to racing uh, next year. John, thank you again for uh, having this really interesting and educational talk on the podcast today thanks jeff appreciate it and that's it for another episode of the tridoc podcast i hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed bringing it to you if you did enjoy listening to it i hope that you'll do me a solid leave me a rating and a review wherever you download this podcast. Subscribe and tell a friend. That's the best way to get the podcast out there to more ears. You could find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you could find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you consider visiting my Patreon page and becoming a supporter. That can be found at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.